Open the podcast doors, Hal. It's Kubrick's Universe, the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to Kubrick's Universe. In today's show, we aim to bring you part one of a pair of very special episodes which were done in collaboration with the Museum of the City of New York. It's located uptown at 103rd Street and 5th Avenue. Through a Different Lens, Stanley Kubrick Photographs is an exhibition that explores a formative phase in the career of one of the 20th century's most renowned motion picture directors, to say the least. Stanley Kubrick was just 17, still in high school, when he sold his first photograph to the pictorial magazine Look back in 1945. In his photographs, many of which went unpublished, Kubrick taught himself how to train his camera on his native city. He drew inspiration from the many nightclubs, street scenes, and sporting events that made up his first assignments. And he captured the pathos of ordinary life but with a sophistication that really belied his young age. Through a different lens, Stanley Kubrick Photographs features more than 120 photos taken by Kubrick from the museum's Look Magazine archive. It's an unparalleled collection that includes 129 photography assignments and more than 12,000 negatives from his five years as a staff photographer working at Look. Now, this exhibition has run throughout the better part of 2018, and due to popular demand, it has now been extended until January 6th, 2019. So, if you can, by all means, please avail yourself of an opportunity to get there and check this out. And of course, please visit their website for updates at mcny.org. Their exhibit is open daily from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. So we're going to start off today's show with a short interview conducted by Alec Baldwin, who is himself an unabashed Kubrick fan. He spoke with the curators of the exhibit, Donald Albrecht and Sean Corcoran, and this piece is being presented to you with kind permission of the Museum of the City of New York. But do stay tuned after that, because then you're going to hear from our man, not in Amsterdam, (laughs) our man in New York, Kubrick's Universe, and the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society's very own roving reporter, Mark Lentz, who got the chance to interview Sean Corcoran at length back on June 1st, 2018 at MCNY. So, listen, we really hope you enjoy the first of our two-part special. This is your host, Jason Furlong, saying thanks, and I'll catch you on the flip side. My name is Donald Albrecht. I'm the Curator of Architecture and Design at the Museum of the City of New York. And I'm Sean Corcoran. I'm the Curator of Prints and Photographs here at the Museum of the City of New York. And we're with Alec Baldwin speaking about Stanley Kubrick. 
What was it that made the museum keen on this exhibition? Like, who, what was the genesis of this exhibit? Well, the, the museum has the New York Stories for Look magazine. The parent company, Cowles, donated the uh, material in the 1950s. In there were about 15,000 Kubrick negatives. What was the beginning for him with the camera? Was he prompted by his family? What was yeah, his, his father. His father was a dentist, but he was a very serious amateur photographer. And as a kid, they had a dark room at home. In the Bronx. In the Bronx. Mm-hmm. And, and he, he became very serious about it. And till, like, as a 17-year-old, he had the courage to kind of go down to, you know, the, the editors and, and show them his pictures. I think for people who, who love Kubrick's films, um, for people who really worship Kubrick uh, as a filmmaker, so much of it is that Kubrick pulls you into his time zone, if you will, his dimension. And, and you see that Kubrick is so, you know, incontrovertibly influenced in the way he shot films as a still photographer. Right. Yes. Images that he held for these excruciating lengths of time. Mm. So just have you just to, just to take it in, like you're like you're sitting on a bench right. at the Met, you know, yeah. looking at some beautiful painting, you know. What's also was interesting about the collection is he starts. He's only 17 years old. He's still in high school. Right. And you see his eye developing, becoming more and more sophisticated, his use of low camera angles, the use of dramatic lighting. All of this is refined by the time he leaves the look in 1950 and starts his own film career. So this is a photograph of Kubrick in a dressing room with Rosemary Williams, who was the subject of his assignment. Rosemary Williams was a an on-the-rise um, stage performer. He's following her on the stage, uh, behind the scenes, but also in her personal life. And that becomes a way of working um, that carries kind of throughout the, right. the career. Our next picture is Mickey the Shoeshine Boy. Uh, this was one of Kubrick's first extended assignments to, again, really profile, in this case, a young Irish kid who shined shoes to support his eight family members. This is probably, I would say, the sweetest of the shoots. It's very endearing because you see this young boy struggling, but enjoying himself. You see him with his friends. There's a lot of camaraderie. You see him wandering the streets of New York, and it's the New York of the late 40s. So it's not the New York of the glass towers yet. It's still the New York of the war years. Mm -hmm. And it's a very, very sweet shoot in contrast to many of the others. My first introduction to Kubrick as a director was to watch Strange Love. Mm-hmm. And Strange Love, like all of his films, there's always a massive tableau. There's the war room. And although he's cutting in when he needs to cut in, when it's right, no one was more right with that cut than Kubrick. He's wide uh, as much as he can possibly be for the scene mm-hmm. to play. And I wonder if you watched his films, and do you see that in his films as well? And give me some examples of what you, where you see this, the, the, the 17-year-old still photographer from the Bronx expressing the same thing, but in the moving picture. You see it most clearly. You see the look connection most clearly in the, fir- in the second feature film, which is Killer's Kiss. Killer's Kiss. There you see it most clearly, and then by the time you're into later films, it seems to be changing. How would you describe the change? It's less focused on New York City, and it's less film noir. Right. And the late 40s photography is very film noir. 
It's a very masculine oeuvre. Yes. You know, it's men, uh, it's almost mammetian. He's like mammoth in exploring the predation of men yes, in the workplace, awesome. men in society. It, it's a man's world. Women are almost absent from mm. his films. And you see that in the, f- in the photographs. This is unpublished, the picture itself, but it's part of a big shoot on Rucker Graziano, the boxer. And the shoot is, the assignment is called, he's a good boy now because he had had trouble with the law and he's come back. And Kubrick follows him through his personal life, which is now happy. But he also goes to the boxing ring, the trainer. And in this photograph, Kubrick is photographing Graziano in the shower. And what we find interesting about it is Graziano was looking back. He's acknowledging that he's being photographed. It's a, it's a fabulous picture. It's a fabulous picture. Well, as I always tell people now, I mean, I'm, I just turned 60, and I say to people now when they're young, I say, do all the nude photographs when you're young. <laughs> what do you hope people will take away from the experience when they come and see the exhibit here at the museum? The formative stages of a great artist's career right. and what he learned and what he may have, what he didn't learn. I mean, he himself said, had I gone to college, I probably would not have become a filmmaker. That look was my college. <sighs> That's and that by the thing. time I was 21, I learned how the world worked, he said, because of not only working within look, but also photographing people in intimate moments, watching for human interactions. He really credits the look years as his, as his college. Mm. Thank you for joining us. Please come and see the exhibition. I will be here. I can't wait. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm curious as to how did the exhibit come about, you know, and why did it come about now? Sure. Um, uh, the exhibition, the, well, the, it's, it, timing is, is all, uh, it's not tied to any anniversary, although it is the 50th anniversary of 2001. Um, it's not tied to any anniversaries. It's really, um, a confluence of years of work and, and, um, really making, making, um, making everything work as quickly as we can when, when the timing was right. So, for instance, um, the, the Look Magazine negatives were donated, negatives and contact prints and some other prints, uh, were donated in the uh, beginning in the late 1950s through the 1960s. Um, but because there were negatives, uh, and mostly negatives, and because um, the museum never had the money to print all of those negatives, a lot of that material stayed in their original housing for decades, literally decades. Um, uh, there was a loose inventory, but um, but but we never really had the ability to understand what we owned. Um, and it really wasn't until the nineteen mid nineteen nineties that that began to change. Um, and in fact, in right around the turn of the century, we um, we got a couple grants, which really made it possible to kind of understand what's here. Um, um, some of them were federal grants where we were able to hire basically somebody to come in under the kind of direction of the cur- then curator to um, literally pull everything out of their original you know, brown paper envelope housings 
put them into archival housings, and then um, create uh, um, an inventory of materials and write a brief description and include the 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 infor- the basic information that looked provided on the on on the um, on the original envelopes, which was like who the maker was. Uh, in this case, Stanley Kubrick. Um, when the assignment was filed, that that date doesn't necessarily relate to when it was published, but when it was actually put into the you know like the photo morgue. Right. Um, and and then their in-house um, filing number. So, uh, and what we were able to do was create a Word document um, for every assignment. And out of that, we then also created an Excel sheet, which was which listed everything. So, um, and and then along with that, we started doing reference scans on you know flatbed scanners. Um, so we started to be able to look at what was what was in the collection. Um, so as as rudimentary as Word and Excel are, you can start searching by words to start finding things. And of co- of course, as people as as we are going through it, Stanley Kubrick is a name that definitely pops out. You know, um, so one so he's been on the radar here for you know. For a while now, um, in, within you know the generation, the last two generations of, of curators, um, but around two thousand seven or eight, we we started really making an effort to digitize the collection, high resolution scans, high resolution um, copy work, copy stand work, and um, in in doing that. Stanley Kubrick's work became, was the thought was declared the highest priority from the collection, and that was the first the first photographer's work that was um, that was digitized completely from the Look magazine archive. We've since done uh, a, a pretty expansive work on Arthur Rothstein, who was the head of the photo department, and and a couple others, but um, but Kubrick's was the first exhaustive. Um, digitization project and by then you know we we could really know what we had in the meantime um we'd done an exhibition uh drawn from the look collection in our initial findings called willing to be lucky um and that was in 2006 i think it was and uh a year or two later um, we published only in New York, which was a kind of a an initial highlights, uh, initial investigation into the the look magazine look magazine collection here. Um, so we've slowly been building towards uh, doing this exhibition uh, and 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 the the book as well. Um, was the original grant? Uh, what was the uh, mandate of the original grant was it for the New York archival? It was. It was to process. It was to process and rehouse the Look Magazine collection, which meant basically taking it out of the old, you know, like Manila folders, um, putting it into archival sleeves and how rehouse, you know, housings, um, and to create uh, initial finding aids. So we to help 
understand what the collection is. Now you have all of Kubrick's scans online. We no, we've we, we online or there are about there are over twelve thousand online. Good number. Yeah, and we have probably. Um, I mean, total total th images is closer to maybe fifteen thousand, and the reason the the discrepancy is. Um, um, you know, when you, when you start a roll of film, you click through, so there are dead frames, things like that. There are frames that are, are, are blurry and illegible basically okay. to the eye. So we've eliminated, you know, everything that is, that really offers nothing. So we've, we've, we've done, we've, we've kind of taken all of that material out. And then on occasion, um, um, we, if, if a similar a frame is basically a repeat of another frame because it's a, maybe a still life or something like that, you okay, know the dupl yeah. some duplicate frames, and that's just uh, you know just to because twelve thousand is already a big number to try to keep it uh, so as manageable as possible for people that are going to look at the material. Well, I really enjoy. I only went out once or twice when I found out it was there, mm -hmm. and the thing that I at the Library of Congress. Are you talking about going to no, the Library he, of Congress? No, here, oh, here, okay. Your online archive. Oh, okay. I was kind of amazed to see that there was such a thing. Mm -hmm. And I like being able to see all the pictures that mm -hmm. Kubrick took in a row mm -hmm. going into a situation. Well, the, the only, I mean, now to be critical of ourselves, the only thing I, w what I would really like, but we don't have the capability of our in our online platform, is to group the materials by... Assignments, so you could actually. I mean, you can through savvy searching, you can do it. But I would, I would like it. I would, I would love it if it was easier um, in a more casual way to find. Just look at them by assignments, yeah. um, so you could really see what he was doing within each of the assignments. Because in the show, you get to see maybe five or six pictures from an assignment, but to really be able to look through sequentially at, and I can do that here because, you know, on our server, we have them stored by assignment. And so for me personally, I can do that, okay. but it's not as, it's not nearly as easy for the viewing public to do it um, on the, on the platform we have. It's just, a, it's a, the infrastructure of the website, which, um, we, we haven't been able to kind of tweak. Well, it to is work. great yeah. what you do have there. It's yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Do you get a free copy of every book that <laughs> <laughs> put out? Uh, no. There's a, there's a, um, well, some of them, uh, some of them are, are the museum's publications. Also others are um, books from research, you know, research projects. Others are, yeah, those are, those are, uh, Kubrick things that we've been involved in, or one way or another, or yeah, their or their research books. So the, there's um. Yeah, can I ask you about since I see them? Sure. Just Stanley Kubrick. So five to fifty. So this, yeah, pull that down and bring it over here. This there's a book. The so this one, you, you know, most people know the Reiner Crone Faden book. Which came I out? Have that shadows. In sh light. Yeah, yeah, that came out in um, two thousand. I think f about two thousand five. It's right there at the end. 
Uh, go this way. More, 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 more. Right oh. there. It's yeah. just faded a bit. Okay. So that's yeah, that one. Um, and when he did that book, he did, of course, he did a lot of research here and a lot of research at the Library of Congress. Um, he has his own take, which I think there's some good information in there. And I mean, as an initial book, it was really kind of made a lot of people begin to understand that there was even this material in existence. Most people didn't even know. Um, I think he, I think there's some conjecture in there that I wouldn't necessarily make. Um, but when he did that book a few years later, he asked us about traveling an exhibition in Europe. Okay. And, okay. and this book here that was published by Junti, uh, let's see if it has a date in it. Um, is an exhibition from... T uh, this is a catalog for an exhibition in Milan from 2010 uh, that Reiner curated, and we um, we agreed to provide um, work. Most of the work. I would say 90% of the work in this exhibition came from us. There's about 10% that came from the Library of Congress. Um, it's in... Um, it's only in Italian, though. And so this... So and Junti was a, uh, an organization in um, in Italy. They still are, I think, uh, that puts on exhibitions and publishes catalogs. And so what they would do is, um, as they found, they they would only print enough for uh, the initial venue, and then when they got another venue a few years later, they would print another catalog specifically for that venue. Um, so there are two or three different versions. Of basically, this. Of, of, of basically the first book, um, in um, so this would be another version. Yeah, the the frankly the best one is this one. I've never which, heard of that. What which, a name! Which is um, <laughs> which is this was the last version of the show. Um, so after after th three or four venues, Reiner bowed out. And, um, um, Junti kept traveling the show and the, and by the end we were working with the Kubrick archive, um, on, uh, not the Kubrick archive, but the, the school of visual arts. No, not the, yeah. So there's, so there's that distinction. There's the SKFA, uh, which is like the, the trust. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then there's the then there's the Stanley Kubrick Film Archives in London at the, that's at the school. Uh, we're working we're working with uh, the trust, okay. who, which is you know um, Jan Harlan and and Katharina. Yeah, yeah. So the family and and the legal entity that Kubrick set up to kind of care for his work. Um, so by so this was the last venue. That was basically um, comprised of the work that we made in this traveling exhibition, and this was in um, in um, in Austria. Well, but and and so they they published this catalog. This is the best one, um, and this is so. This is also not in English. It's very hard to find um, because they only printed you know maybe a thousand or something like that. But it's a really kind of a beautiful catalog. Um, but and this is the same cover photo as the Tashin, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
It's a, it's a, well, it's actually two, there are two frames from that. The other shot. one, she has her lips. Right, yeah. So I think, well, here, where's, where's ours is right here. So it, it is actually the, we did use the same one, just cropped it differently. Okay. But I kind of like the other one too. Yeah, they're, it's, they're it's both sort. actually really good. In, in one, he's holding the camera down at his waist, and the other, he's got it close. He's not looking through the viewfinder, but it's, up closer to his like neck or so, you know, uh, and yeah, and she is in kind of a different position. Uh, this one's nice because you get to see her oh, in yeah. the mirror, I did not notice that. and you get the mirror, you know, as she's looking into it. So oh, it's good. it's this kind of like layers of looking, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um. But um. So, but once this was done, we we once this sh showing happened, we decided we didn't want that showing anymore because it was kind of based on Reiner's research and we, we didn't really we really thought we needed a fresh take on it. How long uh, did this series run? How many years? Well, let's see. This one was let's see. This happened maybe let's get to in the back 2014. So four years. So in four years this there were maybe four or five different versions of the show that you know, there there was I think three venues in Italy, one in Brussels, and then this was the last one. And and uh it was at uh forgive my uh my bad um German uh, Bank Austria Kunstform Vienna. W I E N. So this was the last version of that, and the curator um, Lisa Ortner Creel, she mm -hmm. she did a great job, uh, and and this is a really nice production, it's a really smart woman. Um, but so that once once we decided this was going to be retired, um, we by then we were really working with the Kubrick archive, and and um, you know we started kind of trying to figure out how we would go forward and, and with some new scholarship and some new, um, um, and, a, and a new exhibition, creating a new exhibition. Of course, in the meantime, there's this book, which I, I, I hope you know. I have it on yeah. my Kindle. This, yeah, this uh, the Philippe Mather book is really well um, uh, researched and documented. Again, I, I, I prefer not to make some of the conjecture that he makes, but... Um, but I think it's an incredibly researched and really smart book, and was frankly a, a real resource for for our for our work in in the exhibition. So we 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 certainly acknowledge him in our in in the Tashin book because the work he did made frankly what we did a lot easier, um, and and kind of built off of him in a in a certain kind of way. So. Yeah, all of these things happened, and and then uh, all the ducks kind of lined in a row about two years ago, and we all agreed to to kind of work on an exhibition and a book. And the idea is is that um, the show will, you know, be packaged and will hopefully travel for, you know, a few several years um, around the world. We're we're just starting to. Um, you know, try to, well, we've had some people already inquire about the exhibition and, and then we'll be reaching out, you know, to people, um, just to, to see if there might be interests in, in the coming months. 
So other what you're offering other museums is like a pack, complete package. Yeah, basically. They don't have to do any work. Well, I mean they they don't have to. They ha- they'll certainly have to um, design design the exhibition for their space. And but but yeah, we what we offer is you know the prints that are in the show, the the copies of the look magazines the the words that were written if they wanted the d- the design package you know meaning like the fonts we use and all that stuff they're they're free to use it and or or take the you know the raw text and redesign it to fit you know their style um, but yeah yeah we provide con- the content basically so I like uh, the approach with the big ears and big banners. Mm-hmm. And it helps me see his development from mm-hmm. a young kid right. to someone who's very self-confident mm-hmm. and able to ask celebrities, I want you to do this for me. Right. It seems, of all the skills, that's one of the most important for a director mm-hmm. is how much you're willing to impose, especially for him. Yeah. How much you're comfortable imposing on other people <laughs> right. <laughs> to get something good. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, so our, um, when we, when we started thinking about the exhibition and how it would actually lay out and how we would want a visitor to experience it. Well, one, we wanted to, we really did want to look at this as as a photography exhibition. So we didn't, (laughs) we, we wanted to treat it in many ways like a photography show, but we know that everybody knows him as a filmmaker. And, and the first question we're always asked is how does this relate to the film work? So, uh, we were thinking about that and thinking about all the different aspects of the work that, um, we felt translated into skills or, you know, craft that he needed to become a, a filmmaker. But then we realized like, how how completely arbitrary that would be for us to to um, impose, you know, this picture from this assignment combined with this picture from this assignment to reinforce these ideas. Um, why? So it would be completely the curator's imposition on these images, and you know. And, and would really limit the way the, the, the visitor experienced the, his work. Um, but, the, and we also very, cause Donald, Donald, my co-curator and I, we, we literally went through every single frame that we have here, um, and looked through them again and again. And, and one thing we really did realize was that, that you see a developed meant and a change in his um, approach and style and confidence over the years. So chronology is actually really important. And if you just tried to point out aspects of the work that lead to the film work, you lose that chronology. Um, so what we that's how we eventually got to naming themes so people can um, initially have points of reference while still seeing it in a very straightforward chronological way, assignment by assignment. So you see his development and his eye while still referencing 
the ideas uh, that we feel are important towards his development to becoming a filmmaker. Um, and so that was, we felt was the, the right balance um, of addressing the question we always got, which was, you know, how did this affect, how, how did this impact his filmmaking while still showing his, very clearly showing his trajectory as a photographer mm-hmm. and, and his work at the magazine, because again, it, it also reinforces that he works at a magazine and that he's working on assignments and that, um, these assignments have these, you know, strictures. Um, so it ultimately, this, yeah, by, by putting it chronologically, we could still show assignments. We could show narratives, um, because that's obviously also an important part of filmmaking. Yes. Um, so it just seemed to work out right by doing it that way. It did, now that you explain it, it worked perfectly for me, and then mm-hmm. I had your four categories mm-hmm. in the back of my mind yeah. as I was going through the whole mm-hmm. exhibition. I mean, you could probably also come up with several other categories as well, but um, but those seemed like to get at least to the core point of, of things um, that, that we saw in the work anyway. How did you, you know, what is your background that brought you to this position? Oh, sure. This show? Yeah, yeah, and okay. Also your co-curator, if yeah. you could say a little bit. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, uh, I, w- I was, uh, I was uh, for many years, I went to school for as a historian, Um and uh, I was, particularly when I was a bit younger, I never really wanted to be a teacher, <laughs> and I'm a, and I am am at heart a collector. So, <laughs> um, so like I, from a very very young age, actually, I know I, I knew I wanted to work in museums. Um, uh, well, as I said, I studied history, and um, yeah, when I was in when I was in university, I uh, I became interested in photography as documentation and then by graduate school I became more interested in photography as art so I, I'm I kind of have this dual appreciation for photography as you know as as document documentary document of the world we live in but then also photography as an art form um, and when I got out when I when I graduated I I was hired at the George Eastman House, uh, the you know the George, the museum in upstate New York, where which has a, a fantastic film collection, um, and and a preeminent photography collection. Um, so, so I ended up working there for about eight or so years, um, and that's kind of where I really learned the art of curatorship and 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 really got a specialization in the history of photography and and so after working there for eight years i i ended up here and i've been here now for at the museum of the city of new york for about 10 years no 11 years just hit my 11th anniversary so um yeah and over the years i've done and that, you know now the specialization is photography as it relates to New York City, right. the people in the place. Um, so that's kind of my background. Donald, um, I don't know his. I don't know his. I guess his academic background. Um, but Donald is our curator of architecture and design, and he he has done. 
countless exhibitions on on um on architects on interior design on um but he's also he's had a long standing interest in photography and has done and and I should say art in general um and he's done exhibitions he 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 did the only new york book um on the look collection before uh like I I was just coming to the museum and he had been working here for several years and he did that um, book with another curator, Thomas Mellons. Um, so he had a pretty good familiarity with the look collection in general and he'd done a lot of research on the magazine. Um, so he was kind of a perfect partner because he had this background in the magazine and, and th its history and trajectory. And, and he worked at the Museum of the Moving Image for, for a time. So he is also has a oh. very big interest in, in motion picture. Okay. Um, so that, you know, it would, it just kind of seemed right for us to, to work together on, on the exhibition. And, and I think we, um, I think the show is better off because we work together because of our different backgrounds and, and interest in, in the work. Um, I think we got to just the right place, you know, thanks to that collaboration. Well, uh, we're on the subject of look. I used mm -hmm. to live on 5 East 51st, mm -hmm. and the new look headquarters mm -hmm. was on that corner, that rounded mm -hmm. white brick building. Uh -huh. But I think Stanley worked at the previous look headquarters. Yeah. It would have been, it would have been, yeah, the other one. I, mean, I don't remember the address anymore. <laughs> one of my uh, ulterior well, projects is uh -huh. I'd like to, I love New York City uh -huh. and the history of it. Mm -hmm. And I love that my favorite director was born here and it's very yeah. much a creation he would, he wouldn't be possible without New York City being what it is, right? And so I'd like to, and there's plenty of uh, locations mm -hmm. for where I grew up mm -hmm. and where I lived, mm -hmm. and a couple movies that he created. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to do walking tours. I think it's a great idea. I mean, you know, you could even just from the from the f photography, you know, just from the look material, you know. You could go to the Manhattan Bridge because that's where he was photographing them uh, shooting uh, Naked City. Okay, that's where that was. Yeah, right? yeah, that's the the um, part of that was at at the Manhattan Bridge. I mean, there's of course the Aqueduct. You're not going to go all the way out to Aqueduct, but but there's plenty of New York scenes in the in the assignments um, that you could call upon beyond you know the other material you know, about his personal life. There's, yeah, you could certainly pull it off, I think. I think it'd be pretty interesting. Well, I'd like to use a lot of archival photography to bring the New York of his, when he was walking around here, mm -hmm. what it was like. Mm -hmm. And uh, get, you know, I fans tend to think of him as this godlike figure. Mm -hmm. But... Yeah, well, that's it's funny because, you know, in, the, in, the, uh, in our essay... In the first paragraph, we say something like, "Before he was, before he was this monumental filmmaker that you know everybody admires today, he was just Stanley, a kid from the Bronx. Yeah, you know, he was he was, you know, a kid who wasn't 
didn't do that great in school, but was charismatic and had, you know, lots of interesting friends and, you know, was interested in chess and photography. And, you know, he was just a kid, you know. And that's really inspirational when you mm-hmm. remind yourself of that. Yeah. Yeah. That. Yeah, he didn't go. He didn't. He that. didn't go to college. You know, he 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 he's a self-made person. You know, I wrote down that very first placard that you have. That the gist is: Look Magazine served as his college. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he and he was interested in not academic subjects, but how the real world worked. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's no better place to study that than in this concentrated ball of energy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're ambitious, there's 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 certainly a lot of opportunity in the city. And, you know, he, he was ambitious enough to go down to the Look offices with his picture. And that kind of springboarded him into this career before his, you know, next bigger, greater career. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, it's pretty remarkable, really. Now, you remind me of uh, that very first picture. I've seen it a million times, mm-hmm. like in books. Yeah. But to see it in the Look magazine, right. where it is in the picture, uh, Roosevelt dead, mm-hmm. Truman named president, mm-hmm. but how the Look editor made those two whole chains, of parallel chains, which yeah. then merge. And right, because most people only see the picture. They don't actually see the spread. Yeah. And that was another thing we did that we thought we thought was really important is to, you know, to show those magazine spreads so you could actually, because you could, we could have just put all the photographs up and, and curated it in a way to really aestheticize the, the, the photographs and, and divorce them from the magazine. But but in reality, you need the context of the magazine to understand why he was doing what he was doing and why it looks the way it looks. And, and, and that he, you know, not only is he working for a magazine doing assignment work, not necessarily his own work, um, but how he's learning this along, you know, all of how to, how to work within these, again, working, this working within the system along the way. Um, so yeah, the, the, the magazine spreads are essential and, and especially cause again, we wanted to make this a photography show. So we wanted people to understand that how magazines work and how, a, you know, a photographer shoots, you know, a lot of material and, Ultimately, ma- the magazines would do what choose choose the work to suit their own ends, right? And um, and sometimes it worked out great for the photographer, and sometimes it didn't. Uh, in Stanley's case, it was all about the opportunity and the learning experience. You know, um, I don't know if you've read a lot of the reviews that have been uh, kind of coming out. You know, they, sometimes they say, well, he's not a great photographer. And, and I, and I might to my, I think, well, it, or, or we didn't see a lot of surprises, you know, like that's one of the things I've seen several people write. And I, well, I, to, to some extent I disagree, but, but to another extent, he, you have to, I, I always think you have to remember he's a 17 year old 
17 to a t- early 20-something-year-old who is, like, you know, he he's early. He's If he had decided to just become a photographer for the rest of his life, who, who knows where he would have gone, and, and, it could, and he could have been, maybe he could have been one of the greatest still photographers, too. Um, I had a question. I mean, but it, but, but all, all to say, all to say is like, this is, this is a kid kind of finding his way, finding, finding his way to become, um, you know, a, a, a professional, become a better, at whatever, better, whatever it is he decided to become. Uh, this was like his learning period, his, his learning experience. And, and I think a lot of people that are coming in to look at the show in terms of criticism forget that that this is this is about this is about somebody on their way to somewhere else not this isn't like a you know a mature older photographer's retrospective of his life's work this is the first five years of somebody trying to do something professionally uh you know so it's all about to, to me it's all about the context of of the work as well well, I was curious, I thought about this, mm-hmm. uh, and I was wondering if I did not know the films, mm-hmm. because people love the stills from Kubrick's films, mm-hmm. they're just, they, they practically post the entire film mm-hmm. as a series of stills, and mm-hmm. they're all great, mm-hmm. but I wonder if, divorced from the narrative of the movie, mm-hmm. would these stills be as qualify. impactful. Yeah, could yeah. they qualify as an exhibition just on their own oh, with just the narrative elements that are in them? Maybe. Maybe I don't I haven't I haven't really thought about that. I'd have to go I'd have to look a bit more to give a real opinion on that. But I it might be possible, maybe. I uh, Kubrick was very much about not meeting people's expectations. <laughs> His films always disappointed people at first. Mm-hmm. And I had my expectations for this exhibition where they're pretty vague. Mm-hmm. Like I think of, all right, Kubrick's first film. <laughs> uh, Fear and Desire. Fear and Desire. Huh. Actually, I saw that on the big screen down at IFC. Uh-huh. And it's... It is well photographed, and it gets yes. a lot of strength if you get the full images. The, the images are good in it, then the rest. <laughs> yeah, well, but but working at the, East, the Eastman House had has an original print of that, so I, I I got to see it projected, you know, on in a theater a couple times uh, years ago, and visually it's pretty striking. Yes, you know, yeah, it really, I think it does. It did get a good review, uh, as Kubrick said, mm-hmm. from one of the famous critics. Like, he was kind to it, and mm-hmm. I think it was because of the visual merit of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. But I had all these kinds of ideas from studying this exhibit that I never would have thought of. Mm. Uh, just along the lines of what you wanted it to do, which was what did Stanley learn during yeah. this period? Mm-hmm that would help him later on and and there's lots of ideas mm-hmm. in it one thing I was thinking of walking here was when I was in college they showed us uh, the killing and as- asphalt jungle mm-hmm. side by side yeah. both 
Well, the, the difference is the cinematographer of Asphalt Jungle did nothing at all with the camera. The camera didn't do anything. It just sat there, and it was all just the same. The stars mm -hmm. are the whole object of interest. Yeah. And I feel like I learned that the reason Kubrick shot The Killing the way he did is because he had learned that he had to use his camera to add interest. Like, he mm -hmm. had to make his camera do as much work as the subjects were doing. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I do, th I, I mean, this is one thing I, 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 I don't know, you tell me what you think, but, but he didn't become a director, uh, he, he became a director after actually spending a lot of time, like, behind the lens, as opposed to just, like, creating narratives and thinking about shots he was actually making shots and and he made several short films and so he he's had the experience behind the camera to kind of know again to, he was he had a better understanding and knew what he had to do i think we're saying the same yes. thing and to a certain extent is um the camera had to work as well i think what you said is is right yeah yeah that was a very important leg of mm -hmm. his art mm -hmm. yeah I agree. With, yeah, that's interesting. And I think he learned that because he would be put into a situation as a photographer where mm -hmm. he had to come up with something that was interesting. Mm -hmm. And so he was inventive. Mm -hmm. Also, I think he developed a confidence. Well, and, and the other thing, too, is, yes, yeah, sometimes you're sent on an assignment that is not that interesting. And how do you, how do you make it interesting? That's like that's the that's the assign for an assignment photographer. That is the key to becoming a good assignment photographer. Is how do you take something you might not be interested in, or is hard to photograph, and how do you make it interesting? Yeah, you have to be creative, right? And you so, accept that as part yeah. of your job. Yeah, you've got to have the energy. Yeah, and you got to invent on the spot. Mm -hmm. And that's why Kubrick didn't storyboard. Mm -hmm his photos as he was confident first of all he wanted to see the setup mm -hmm. and then he would invent mm -hmm. the best way to shoot it in that environment mm -hmm. and I don't think there's as uh, the person who has the overall vision of what the film's going to be yeah. he might be the only one who also had these other skills mm -hmm. that he could keep it all coordinated mm -hmm. into one artistic hall so yeah. everything was at the service of his vision. Mm -hmm. Whereas, say, Spielberg, he's very interested in the story, mm -hmm. but he farms out the, the music mm -hmm. and cinematography to other talented people. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it leads to this one like beautiful cohesive, work of art. Yeah, 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 yeah. Everything works to the whole. Yeah. Well, I wanted to not forget, so Tashin, I know them from other Kubrick mm -hmm books about his movies yeah did you approach them or did they well yeah so this is where the the archive was was kind of essential because um we agreed we agreed that that the museum would work on a book to go along with it and they suggested that we we work with Tashin because they've done they've been the, you know the, the Stanley Kubrick archives book right. and uh, several of the, the film books and what they really liked about Toshin, and it's completely true, is they have great distribution. Their books are in stores everywhere. Um, and, and that was their most important 
criteria was like, we want to do, if we do a book, we want people, we want it to be seen. We want people to know about it. Um, and, um, so, so there, that's cause we, we, we approach several publishers and ultimately, um, for several factors, they were the right, they were the right people to do it. One thing I yeah. like about your current book, uh, is it seems like the print quality is so good. Yeah. It's almost as, in some, in some ways it's just as good as being here Yeah, because you can look right. Well, close. And, and in fact, in the book, there are occasionally pictures printed larger than they are in the gallery, <laughs> which is really funny yes. to think about. Um, but, um, because I mean, that is one of the things is when Tashin decides to do a, a luxurious book, they really do it. I mean, they, they, have the best they, they go to the best printer they are not afraid to make a big book a thick book um an expensive book there you know and who knows if it does well maybe they will make a smaller version like they have for the Kubrick archives they've made a, a later version oh, yeah. that's a smaller version that version which yeah. I tore apart <gasps> stills and the vertical version yeah yeah and there's a gigantic version that was the first yeah the first one yeah yeah but that one um, the print was too small for me to read. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, they, the, um, the archive sent me the first edition of the Napoleon book. Oh wow! Which is like about a foot thick, and about <laughs> a f- about maybe a foot and a half wide. And this beautiful gilt thing. You open it up, and then inside are all these other books. Like that's attached. I mean, attaching is not afraid to do a over the top, beautiful book. And yeah, we were, we were, once we started working with the editor, we felt, we, we felt really confident that we were going to get a, a good book. You know, like everybody worked really well together. And, um, you know, we, I think we got it, we got it to, so it, it, you'll be interested in this. So the first, Donald and I went through, as I said, we went through all, all of the, all of the scans and we, I think we got it down to initially 600 pictures. That was the first edit. And then we, you know, we showed those 600 to the editor and they were like, we, yeah, we like the direction you're going. And so what we did was, I hear when you look in the back of the book, because we, 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 we wanted to, there to be at least a representation for every assignment in the collection here. Good idea. And that's why there is in the back of the book this additional assignments, 46 to 1950. So here there is an entry for every single assignment that Kubrick did for, you know, if it wasn't in the front of the book, it's here. So there's a representation for everything. And in fact, there are several assignments here that could have gone in the front section, but um, in one for one case or another, maybe it was a similar assignment to one that we uh, one that we cho- we we decided was maybe a better representation of him trying to, you know, cover this radio personality or something like that. You know what I mean? So so we, what we did is ultimately we ended up pushing some things to the back where we thought there was something else we included that kind of got to the point of what he was trying to do in that type of assignment. Okay. You know, very good strategy. Yeah. 
Um, again, we did it in a chronological way. So, again, if you weren't able to come to the exhibition, you would still kind of see and understand his his development as things went along. Again, whenever there was a published assignment, we wanted to set the stage by showing the, the published material and how the editors and the designers chose to lay them out. Right. Um, but, yeah, uh, ultimately, uh, it, you know, we knew we knew it was we were gonna it was the book was gonna end up being around three hundred images. So, um, you know, we we had to sometimes horse trade a bit amongst ourselves about you know would this would this particular assignment get six pictures or four pictures? You know, uh, which maybe this one should have one more, but then you know we have to keep an eye on our page count and you know. So ultimately, I think we. We got the right mix of longer assignments and shorter assignments, and the ones that needed more pictures got them for the most part, you know, when they needed them. So, like, this this one, this is a great assignment, but it didn't make it into the show. So Because the show, we had le- a lot less space, obviously, than, than we could have in the book. How many are hung in the show? There's 132 pictures in the show, and there's about 300 images in the book. I was um, telling uh, the receptionist that it took me four hours to absorb it all. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> Most people don't uh, say, "Oh, and for our show, so for so Vaughn Monroe got didn't make it into the wall, on the walls here because we felt kind of like there were other profiles of musicians that that suited." Okay, um, this is new to me. Um, we didn't put in the Philadelphia Bozar Ball because it was in New York. You know, so there's certain things that are in here in the book that didn't make it into the show just because of, you know, that those kinds of reasons. I do like that they're all large for aging eyes. <laughs> <laughs> the hardest part, actually, was the captions. Like, it, you know, especially if they, were un, if they were unpublished. We wanted them to be brief as possible, um informative as possible but not too intrusive because they're they're frank they're they're descriptive but they're not necessarily um you know what the magazine if if we had if it was published and we could use a version of the magazine's captions we did but when it was when we had to provide them we just tried to make it as descriptive and con- to provide context as much as possible, but but but, but, uh, but otherwise, yeah, n- not no commentary in there, just more report reportorial, you know. That was good. Yeah, and in fact, that's that's the uh, the the kind of approach for for the text in the exhibition is like we do so the 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 Colum- the picture of the scientist holding the the, the light and and the columbia assignment everybody compares that to dr strangelove yeah, yeah. but we we don't you know we let when it comes to placing any of the any of the still photographs against any of the films we we try not to really do that um, because because it is conjecture uh I've seen, um, I've seen comparison of the, you know, um, in the in the little red room. There's the three assignments that he stage directs. About one is called um, um, jealousy, a threat to marriage, and another one. You know those those ones. There's one. Um, 
there's one in which it's uh, an older an older man talking to a younger girl <laughs> and and of and and I've heard people compare that to Lolita and that is an assignment from 1950 Lolita wasn't even written yet <laughs> Um, you know, so like, how could he possibly have, you know, when he was making that picture, he, he wasn't thinking about making a film a decade later or decade plus later or whatever about, you know, this picture, you know, so we avoided that kind of conjecture, um, whenever possible. And if people want to make associations, that's fair. I mean, there are certain visual associations that, are understandable, but, but, but we didn't feel like that was our place to, to do in an exhibition. Well, I feel it was Kubrick's philosophy to make the viewers make their own associations Mm -hmm, mm because it has meaning for them. Right. They get the fun of making it Mm -hmm. and all the fun is taken away if you make it. Yeah. You're spelling everything out. Because then also that's the only, that's locked in. Yeah. One of the big benefits of working a real job here was he is exposed to all these other lifestyles mm-hmm. that were different from his. Mm-hmm. So the Columbia photos are very theatrical, mm-hmm. and he earlier had that assignment of f- photographing the dance troupe, I think it was, the clowns, in super stagey lighting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I would make a connection like that. That yeah, that's a thea- that was out. a theater production. Yeah. So you start out, you're photographing in natural light on the street, mm-hmm. but then you realize, oh, this is a possibility: theatrical lighting. Mm-hmm. So by the time it got to Columbia, it seemed like he was purposely yeah making theatrical lighting. Yeah, yeah. If you look at the 1946 or 1947 assignments, there is like. Um, people mugging on the street. There's the Bronx conversations. There's the how to look at a monkey. Those are yeah. Those are all outside natural light. You know. Yeah. Even the 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 first one that you kind of see maybe any lighting is the Johnny on the spot. Um, you know. But but it's really not. And even in forty forty seven forty forty that was forty six forty six was all were all of those forty seven. Um, is like the subway, and most of that is natural light too. Um, but he's a little. He's also going to onset of Naked City, where he's seeing, you know, them use st- stage lighting, and he's photographing. Yeah, some of the theatrical um, sets. Yeah, so by '48, when he's photographing in Columbia, so you see it. I mentioned to you I like the exhibit so much I might like to give docent tours of it at some point. Oh, yeah, yeah. And if I were to, that would be my thread is relating what he learned on each assignment Mm -hmm. and how he used that later on. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think that's interesting. So the uh, Johnny on the Spot, Mm -hmm. uh, to me, I was struck by having someone else to work with mm-hmm. like normally it's just you and the subject mm-hmm. but to have Johnny providing this energy mm-hmm. to the other people in the photo mm-hmm. then the focus was on Johnny and Kubrick the photographer could uh, concentrate on getting interesting shots mm-hmm. and that really freed him up 
mm-hmm. to come up with some to go right in there yeah as opposed to standing back yeah I think that's right so uh, that to me I like uh, being able to identify with Stanley alright I sent it this assignment how am I going to do it yeah and uh, his development and coming up with great ways to do things yeah yeah yeah, I mean, and then you, in by in forty eight, he also does the that uh, circus assignment. They send him down to Florida for that, and you know, there's a there's there's a. I wish I had another copy of the magazine. There, he he makes these por- he makes portraits of of some of the women performers, and um, you can't really tell in the in the show so much, but. You know, and and look, they they used they had all of these like little, like little kind of running um, things, like where they asked people the general public questions, mm-hmm. and and he used and so one of them was he 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 asked they they asked one of the, all of these women from from the circus. A question, and they used all of his portraits of these women. Um, so they were not only his pictures were not only used for the resulting assignment on how the circus gets set. They were also used on other pages in the magazine um, for you know their other kind of column that they usually ran. Um, and so he made you know he made those portraits, and then he made um, the those outdoor kind of rehearsal pictures. But then he made a bunch of um, of the rehearsals under the tent, and there's that really surreal-looking one that we included in the exhibition where he's kind of going outside of the norm for the magazine. Oh, and, yes. You know, I like those ones that you mentioned. Yeah. He knew look wouldn't, probably wouldn't print on, yeah, but he just yeah. thought they were... Yeah, they and, were and I think you see a little bit more of that happening around that time, too, is where... He's he's making the pictures that they want, but he's also exploring kind of his own interests as well. And if they don't use them, that's you know, he's just taking the pictures because he's attracted to what's happening. I think you know, and that's kind of that's kind of interesting. Yeah, I like that we have the capability because he didn't even see the prince develops right. He just gave the negatives. I mean. It's hard to say. He, he probably did see contact print contact sheets, um, but as far as we know, he like he never took the negatives and printed them. We've never seen prints. You know, there's maybe we have a, I don't know maybe a dozen or two eight by tens, but in the in the photography marketplace, I think I've seen three or four pictures out there in the world, but that's it. I mean, these pictures weren't printed and, you know, they, they, they just don't seem to really be around. And I don't know for a hundred percent certain, but I don't really believe that the library of Congress has any either from what I've been able to tell from the records, it's mostly negatives and contact prints. So they, yeah, they were never like, they were never really seen like they are in the gallery. And that was another reason why it's important to show the magazines is because, you know, that is truly the context in which they were seen. Uh, Are you aware if the Stanley himself through the estate, uh, valued any of his photos enough to 
have prints made? He, well, I I don't think so. Um, they they made. He had he he did have contact prints of some of the assignments, um, and in fact, what the archive has in the, in the university, um, they do have like some eight by tens and things like that. They those were ordered from the Library of Congress. Oh, okay. Uh, or and maybe some from us, but I don't think so. I think they're mostly, yeah. So those were made long after the fact. That's my understanding, anyway. None of it is vintage stuff that he printed from the time. One of my favorite photos is one of the circus photos where I guess you have the ringleader mm-hmm. and he's photographed from below. Yeah, kind of barking yeah, something and out and you have the high wire act. If I was going to pick a photo, that's uh-huh. like an artistic photo. Yeah. That's it's kind of construction. It's like almost kind of Russian constructivist, yeah. right? Uh yeah, it's the, it's definitely the most designed, designed and composed. I doubt that that happened naturally. I, I suspect that you know he was told to the. Um, that's actually was a Ringling Ringling Northrop. It's like he's the head of the the circus. Um, I'm sure he was posed, you know, for that picture. And I mean, and everybody recognized it was a great picture because it's the lead picture for the printed, you know, spreads. Now you mentioned in the tour mm-hmm. when uh, that I was on that you sort of, if you were asked where Stanley fits in mm-hmm. in the history of photographers, he was the intermediary between the classical mm-hmm. and the and the modernists. Yeah, and I say that in the sense of. Um, uh, in, in the sense of in, in kind of journalism and photojournalism and, and, and to a certain extent art photography, you, you know, the previous generation uh, of, of photographers were either very straight news reporters or they were people like Edward Weston or Alfred Stieglitz who uh, only thought of their photography as art. And the later generation would have been art photographers who were working for magazines like Arbus or Gary Winogrand or, and I kind of find him somewhere in between. He was knew he was working for a magazine trying to do pretty, pretty straight work that was, you know, to meet the needs of, of the magazine. But then every once in a while he would take these pictures for himself that had a kind of, let's just say a, a viewpoint that wasn't, that didn't quite fit the, the, the editorial style of the magazine and those pictures I think lean somewhat more towards the later generation of photographers they're a little more off kilter a little out of the norm um, be, it, be it by composition or by subject matter um, and that kind of is that kind of leans more towards the later latter generational styles which were eventually accepted and taken up by, you know, magazines and things like that, you know. So that's kind of why I think he kind of fits somewhere in between. So you mentioned that uh, he was probably influenced by Ouija. Yeah, he was. I I don't think there's any doubt there. He was definitely uh, influenced by Ouija. And so Ouija, by the time, um, by 1945... 
would have been a well-established photographer, well-known in New York City. Um, he worked for primarily, although not exclusively, for this magazine called PM, and he was known for um, since let's say sensationalistic photographs of. Um, he was uh, he, he, he the emergency before anyone else. Yeah, yeah. He photographed crime scenes before the police had even arrived. He um, he he would photograph people like he was like one of the first um, pho- like kind of paparazzi t- style photographers who um, would catch criminals on their perp walk. You know what became known as the perp walk. Um, very intrusive. Yeah, very very in your face and intrusive. Um, he would. But what made him interesting is not only that he would make these pictures that a lot of other people couldn't or wouldn't make, but um, he would also turn around to photograph the crowd's reactions to these scenes, um, which are often even better than the crime scene pictures. And so, so yeah, he was very well known in New York City, especially if you were interested in photography, you would have known his work. Would they have an exhibit of his work? Um, back then? He had a show at the Photo League um, in the 40s, but I don't know the exact time frame for that. Um, Where was the Photo League? Or is, is it still around? No, the Photo League is definitely not around. They were they closed because they were con- they were accused of being communist sympathizers oh. <laughs> um, um, by the early by around 1950 or so. But he was a member. Ouija was a member, and he did have an exhibition there. But uh, right around the same time, he had made um, photographs of you know these infrared photographs of um, of couples in in movie theaters. Oh, right. Uh, and, you know, kind of couples making out, and, and, and you know, it's a little bit of conjecture, but I that may have affected his interest in making the, the, the love is everywhere park benches, love is everywhere work. Uh, it's certainly the infrared photography influenced the, those, the similar infrared photographs in that assignment, you know, the, the couple on the fire escape. And there's like another, there's another one of couple, a couple making out near a trash can yes. in an alleyway. Um, I think there's little doubt that those were, influenced by Ouija. Uh, and then he probably met him on the set of uh, Naked City. Um, Can't wait to see that. Yeah. That's that. And, and we're showing that we're showing Naked City here as a public program, but, but the original movie was loosely based on, or came out of Ouija's first monograph called Naked City. I did not know that. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so Ouija was around and on the set. Um, and then, of course, as you know, Ouija was the set photographer for Doctor Strangelove. So there, like, they they got to know each other, and there was clearly an admiration for for Ouija's work. Um, you know, for for years to come, even. Oh, you know something else I just heard? Hmm. Maybe that he did. You can tell me this. Hmm. Did he ever do an assignment uh, of the New York City Ballet that had Ruth Sabatka in it? Because I read that somewhere. We don't have it if he did. It could be in the Library of Congress. It would be really an amazing Well, you could actually look in the, in the back of this book. Okay. Philippe Mather has has logged all of the assignments. Okay. So that's what you... I would, I would suggest 
kind of trolling through this to see if if there's any reference to it. That was so, an incredible yeah, photo. Yeah, yeah, um, but I'm not 100 percent certain about that. Yeah, um, but there is a photograph of of I think his name's Alex Singer. I, I maybe maybe or Singer or something like it's that. Definitely Singer. Yeah, he there's a there's a there's a picture. Kubrick has made a picture of him photographing Kubrick. Um, oh. So, so it's it's Singer looking down at his camera, making a picture of. So they're taking pictures of each other, and that is in the Palisades um, Park assignment. So Singer was the second uh, cameraman in Day of the, the fight. fight. Yeah, and he was working. The story that I've been told is like that he was. I think it's in the 1966 interview. Uh, is that he was working at March of Time. Yes. And Bruto as well. Yeah, and and he and he told Kubrick that like they're spending all this money on these on these short films, you know, like thirty thousand dollars or something like that. And that's where Kubrick was like, Oh, I can probably make one for three thousand and and we could make a lot of money. And, which didn't of course pan out. But yeah. um but that's that's one of the stories I've heard about, you know, that how that all came about. Wow. Yeah. Pretty cool, right? And there's more where that came from because we got part two for you. On all of our behalf, I would just like to extend our deepest thanks to Tracy McFarlane, and Lillian Lesser from the Museum of the City of New York, as well as, of course, Mark Lentz, all of whom provided the content for this episode. Personally, I'd also like to thank our show's producer, chief researcher, and editor, Stephen Rigg. Stephen, you're the man. Love you, dude. Hey, guys, please check out mcny.org so you can get details about how you can attend this amazing exhibition that is on display for the time being anyway. And through their website, you can also order Kubrick photographic prints and the glorious new Toshin book. It's all there on their website. And hey, if you're so inclined, think about joining the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society on Facebook, because it really is the coolest place online for all things Kubrick. Think of it as your one-stop Kubrick shopping. <laughs> and one more thing for now, if you have time, please just give us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts because ratings and reviews really are important to the ongoing life of this podcast that we love bringing you so much. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Jason Furlong signing off for now and saying, don't forget to keep your discriminator set to CRM 114. Ciao for now. It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human 
error. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick podcast.